Hey everyone, it's Glenn Greenwald and welcome to the second episode of my new podcast here on Colin. I'm super excited by the debut that we did. The time really flew. I had no idea that I was on for two plus hours, but the combination of being able to just talk and elaborate on topics of interest in this forum combined with how well it went to be able to take questions and engage with um, readers and and with listeners really did make the time fly. It's an incredibly uh, stimulating way to have a discussion about news items. It's also a huge relief to be able to remove myself and, and this discourse from the sewer of social media as this platform is designed to do. So we probably won't go quite as long um, as we did the first time. It'll probably be a bit briefer, certainly will be a bit briefer, but I wanted to talk about a couple of topics that are on my mind as indicated by the title, particularly the trial, the ongoing trial of Kyle Rittenhouse on various murder charges in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and the news just broke that the jury has not yet reached a verdict and will continue its deliberations tomorrow, which I don't think is particularly surprising. And I'll talk about the implications of that shortly. And I wanted to spend even more time talking about the FBI's rather extraordinary and I think deeply alarming targeting of various associates of Project Veritas, the group founded by the conservative activist and journalist James O'Keefe, The FBI has executed very unusual search warrants to enter their apartments and homes with battering rams, large numbers of agents, seizing their cell phones, extracting information from those cell phones. It's always an alarming matter when the FBI targets people who are engaged in the practice of exposing secrets of the powerful, reporting the news, uh, exposing information about factions in Washington that they prefer to keep concealed. But it's even more alarming for obvious reasons when, as is the case here, it is being done by an administration that has a particular ideology, in this case, liberalism, and the targets of their law enforcement actions, their search warrants, their seizures, have the opposite ideology, conservatism, and Project Veritas in particular, is an organization devoted to revealing relevant and incriminating information about the Democratic Party and their liberal allies. And so for the Biden administration to target them is something that I think merits a lot more attention than it's thus far received. Now, first of all, just as a logistical note, as many of you probably know, the benefit of This room is, and this app, is that it is interactive, which means that anyone who has questions, who wants to talk about those topics or others, or pose uh, questions slash critiques slash criticisms, just has questions, can get into the queue. And I will shortly begin just in sequence, taking as many comments and questions as I can for you. I do, though, just want to spend a few minutes talking about why I find these topics worthy of greater focus. Last night on Rumble, I published a video report that was about an hour long that was designed to be an in-depth look at 
why the FBI's actions against Project Veritas were so disturbing. And I wrote on Substack an article earlier today that tangentially examined some of those issues, but also looked at what I think are commonalities in the discourse that has arisen around that episode, the FBI targeting of Project Veritas, as well as the Kyle Rittenhouse trial and a really important, in my view, dynamic that is exposed by the way in which we're discussing these topics. So I want to actually spend the bulk of my time before I start taking questions on that second part. Um, I'll leave you to the Rumble video if you're interested in doing a deep dive into the Project Veritas case, and I hope you will, because I genuinely do think it raises very serious concerns about the government's attack on press freedoms and the potential to create what I would regard as the second most dangerous precedent for attacking press freedoms after the current efforts to extradite and prosecute Julian Assange, although there's a lot in common between those two cases. Um, But so if you're interested in my deep dive analysis, you can, and I hope we'll look at that video on Rumble that we did. Um, It was heavily produced and researched. We really kind of walked through what the Project Veritas and O'Keefe cases cases about. But what I want to do instead is talk about how it is that we're thinking about and talking about these topics, because in that reaction, I find some really important dynamics. So if you look at the way in which the FBI has justified what they're doing to Project Veritas, and obviously, say what you want about Project Veritas, they're an extremely controversial organization that use unconventional, though by no means unprecedented, journalistic tactics, including undercover investigations, which has been a source of debate in media for a long time about whether journalists can ethically use undercover means to obtain information, which they then report. The argument against it is that it necessarily is deceptive because you pretend to be something that you're actually not. And therefore, it's unethical inherently for any journalist to deceive in order to obtain information. The reality, however, is that undercover investigations are used by all kinds of institutions. Obviously, law enforcement uh, institutions use them all the time. Activist groups use them all the time. It's very common, for example, for animal rights activists, um, a a group that I cover a lot, to pretend to be an employee, to want to get a job at Smithfield Foods or other factory farms, when in reality, their real motive is to secretly film the atrocities that take place inside those factory farms, which I think is a form of journalism, but it's certainly a form of activism that's considered perfectly appropriate. But it's also the case, for sure, that news organizations, media outlets, have frequently used the tactic of undercover investigations. And this is what I find so remarkable about the FBI targeting of Project Veritas and the attempt by many Democrats and liberals to justify it. First of all, no matter what, we should be inherently alarmed when the FBI does something like this for the reason that I just said. So the only way not to be alarmed is to be able to come up with some justification about why you're comfortable having the FBI target a group with an oppositional dissenting ideology 
that whatever else you think of it does core reporting and journalistic functions that reveal secrets of the powerful. One argument to justify it would be that they broke the law. And just because you're a journalist doesn't mean you're any more entitled to break the law than anybody else. If a reporter from the New York Times commits murder or a journalist from NBC News breaks into a house or an office to steal material, the fact that they're a journalist obviously doesn't immunize them from all the other standard uh, processes of law enforcement and investigation. And so the mere fact that Project Veritas is a journalistic outlet in some sense doesn't make the FBI's targeting of them inherently improper if they, in fact, broke the law. Thus far, there's no claim by anybody that James O'Keefe and Project Veritas broke the law. To the extent we know anything about this case, and we know very little, and that I find already rather disturbing, that we know so little, there seems to be very little demand that the FBI tell us why they've done this. Imagine, if you will, if during the Trump years in 2018 or 2019, the FBI under Donald Trump had executed search warrants to invade the newsrooms of the Washington Post and CNN and barged into Anderson Cooper's apartment and Rachel Maddow's apartment and Maggie Haberman's apartment and took their cell phones and extracted information from it. I don't think anybody would be comfortable saying, well, let's just trust the FBI that they're acting properly. We would want, we would demand evidence that this was an actual, actually a legitimate law enforcement operation, that it wasn't retaliatory, that it wasn't designed to intimidate a free press, that it was designed to investigate real criminality. Where is that explanation on the part of the Biden Justice Department as to why they've done these extremely invasive searches and seizures of Project Veritas uh, associates, including James O'Keefe? The little that we do know doesn't provide very much assurance that this is proper. It seems to be related to the theft at the end of 2020 of a diary maintained by Joe Biden's adult daughter, Ashley, who tends to stay out of the spotlight, unlike her brother, Hunter. Her diary was stolen. She reported that to the police. What we know is that Project Veritas did receive a copy of that diary, but they chose not to publish it. Project Veritas never published any portions of the Ashley Biden diary because they concluded that they couldn't authenticate it, that they could not obtain confidence that what they had in their possession was authentic, which is what you would want a responsible journalistic outlet to do, to refrain from publishing material where they can't identify the authenticity of it. So not only is there no evidence that James O'Keefe or people from Project Veritas participated in the theft or the pilfering of this diary, which obviously would be a crime, what we do know suggests that they didn't. Obviously, if they had broken into Ashley Biden's apartment and took her diary, they wouldn't have doubts about its authenticity. They, of course, would have published it. The fact that they admit they got it from a source but didn't publish it strongly suggests that they weren't involved in the illegal acquisition of it, in the theft of it. So that justification, at least based on what we know, seems not to be viable.
So what other justification then is there? Oddly, it was the New York Times, or maybe not oddly, disturbingly, maybe not oddly, it was the New York Times that led the way in trying to give liberals a reason to think that they shouldn't be bothered by this. They published an article last week that was essentially designed to say that Project Veritas are not really journalists. And therefore, there's no concerns about press freedom because why would you be concerned about press freedom from the FBI when they're targeting people who aren't really journalists? Now, how can you say Project Veritas aren't really journalists? How, if you're the New York Times, can you do that? What arguments can you make to distinguish between real journalists, quote unquote, and fake journalists? If you're the New York Times, you can't say, well, sometimes Project Veritas gets stories wrong or publishes false information because they're the New York Times. It wasn't Project Veritas that convinced Americans to believe falsely that Saddam Hussein had nuclear weapons and biological and chemical weapons that caused a war that destroyed a country of 26 million people. It wasn't Project Veritas which published one fake story after the next trying to link President Trump and his campaign to Russia. So you can't say, well, once a news or outlet publishes something false, they're no longer real journalists entitled to the First Amendment, because who then is left as a real journalist? Certainly not the New York Times. So that wasn't the tack they tried. What they tried instead was the argument I mentioned earlier, which is they said, Project Veritas exists in this gray zone between journalism and spying. And their reason for that was because they do something that no real journalist would do, which is they use undercover investigations, which entails lying. Now, the amazing thing about that claim from the New York Times is that you don't have to go back more than two years. You can find an article from the New York Times in 2019 that applauds multiple news organizations for using undercover investigations in order to do what the New York Times called compelling journalism. There was a case where Al Jazeera wanted to investigate the NRA. And so they sent reporters and lied, saying they weren't reporters, but gun activists to infiltrate the NRA and other right-wing parties associated with the NRA. And they did reporting based on what they heard through that deceit through that undercover investigation. And the New York Times heralded that as compelling journalism. There was a famous case back in the 1970s where Gloria Steinem, the famous and celebrated feminist, wanted to report what really went on inside Playboy clubs. And so she disguised who she was, applied for a job as a waitress, got a job as a waitress, was in fact acting as a journalist, hid her intentions, deceived about her identity, and reported on when, what went on side in Playboy clubs. In, 19, in, 19, in 2017, a reporter for Mother Jones, Shane Bauer, pretended to be a prisoner. He got himself imprisoned in a prison so that he could report on prison conditions, spent four or five months in a prison lying about who he was and what his intentions were, wrote a story on the conditions inside this prison, and won several major prestigious journalism board. So it is amazing that the argument the New York Times settled on to try and convince liberals that they shouldn't care that Project Veritas is being targeted by the FBI because they're not real journalists, 
namely that they use undercover investigations, is an argument the New York Times itself does not believe because just two years ago, they published an article on the debate surrounding this tactic and applauded various news outlets for using that exact same tactic. Now, if you actually look at what the FBI is doing here and the issues that it raises and strip away the personalities involved and the ideology and politics involved, this is not even a close case. And that's why press freedom groups, which do tend to be more accommodating of left liberal politics, like the Committee to Protect Journalists, issued a statement vehemently, uh, I wouldn't say condemning the FBI, but expressing serious grave concerns about what the FBI is doing to Project Veritas and the potential it has to harm press freedoms. The Freedom of the Press Foundation, which is a group I co-founded with Daniel Ellsberg, the Pentagon Papers whistleblower, and Laura Poitras and Edward Snowden and the actor John Cusack, issued a similar statement. And even the ACLU, even the ACLU, which is very loath at this point ever to defend anybody who is disliked by their liberal donor base, even the ACLU quietly put a statement on their website. They didn't put it on their social media account because that's where people would see it, but at least they put it on their website explaining that they are deeply concerned about the potential that this would have for endangering press freedom and they want to know more information from the Justice Department. There are journalists like Ben Smith, the New York Times, and other journalists who have also said this is deeply concerning. The federal judge who approved the search warrants has temporarily enjoined, stopped, impeded the FBI from extracting information from the cell phones that they seized in order to determine the legality of it. So the fact that this is a very grave and serious threat to press freedom, absent knowing more, is not really even a controversial matter, as demonstrated by all those facts. And yet, it is almost impossible in left liberal spaces, in left liberal discourse, to say that you're concerned about the FBI's targeting of Project Veritas and James O'Keefe, because instantly you will be accused of defending not the First Amendment and defending not press freedoms or being worried about the precedent it set, you will instantly be accused of defending James O'Keefe, of being sympathetic to Project Veritas. People cannot separate the principles clearly at stake from this case with their assessment of the personalities of the people involved. It just, it's, a, it's a capacity that has been lost in our discourse, the ability to apply principles without regard to personality. The personality and the question of whether you like someone or not is the, is the beginning, middle, and end point of the inquiry. Now, the reason I link this to the Kyle Rittenhouse case is because exactly the same thing is true. I think I mentioned in the debut show that I actually was somebody who paid a co- close attention to what happened with Kyle Rittenhouse starting in August of last year through his arrest and charging. But I never opined on it because as a lawyer, I've really come to learn that you cannot really know enough about what happened in a complex act involving violence and multiple killings 
without the full context that only a jury trial can provide. And so I wanted to watch most or all of the jury trial before forming an opinion about the Rittenhouse trial. And I did that. I spent the last 10 days watching almost all of it. And I finally, for the first time, formed an opinion I was comfortable enough publicly expressing, which is that I believe the state has fallen far short of its obligation to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he committed what the law regards as murder because the evidence that he had a reasonable fear for his life and therefore engaged in legitimate self-defense when he shot at four people, killing two and wounding a third, missing a fourth, that that evidence that the state presented is woefully inadequate. And go and try and find anywhere that you can express that opinion without immediately being accused not of having the wrong opinion about how you are assessing the evidence, but instantly being accused of supporting white nationalism, supporting white supremacy, being an apologist for Kyle Rittenhouse, supporting the idea that people should go and kill anti-racist or Black Lives Matter protesters. There's, again, no ability at all to assess the principles, the legal principles, the evidence involved. Instead, one's tribal loyalties or ideological beliefs or partisan affiliations predominate to the exclusion of everything else. Exactly the same thing that we're seeing in the, in the O'Keefe case. Now, just want to add one more point before I start uh, taking questions and comments from the queue. What has interested me the most about the James O'Keefe case is that the argument that is being deployed in order to justify what the FBI is doing, namely, oh, you don't have to worry about what's being done to James O'Keefe and Project Veritas because they're not real journalists. We at the New York Times are real journalists. We at CNN are real journalists. We at NBC News are real journalists. We have the right to the First Amendment. The FBI couldn't come in in reprisal and retaliation, seize our cell phones, but you can do it to them because they're not real journalists. That is such a tyrannical and dangerous argument. And it's also such a constitutionally ignorant one. It's dangerous because who is it that we think is trustworthy and competent to make decisions about who is and is not a real journalist such that you can claim the protections of the First Amendment for the information that you report on? What does that even mean, a real journalist? How, for example, are people who work for CNN real journalists? What stories have they ever broken in their lives? Now, one of the reasons this resonates for me so much, this the dangerous nature of this tactic, is it is exactly the argument being used to justify the ongoing attempt to extradite and for life in prison Julian Assange, even though Julian Assange has broken more major stories than every employee of every large media corporation combined. And yet the argument used to justify prosecuting Julian Assange, if you say this is a really dangerous case for press freedom, what they will say to you is, oh, don't worry. It doesn't matter for press freedom. Assange isn't really a journalist. Just like what they say for James O'Keefe. And maybe the reason I find this so personally uh, important 
it's because this has been done to me. This tactic has been used against me in the two most important and consequential instances of reporting I've done in my career. A lot of people have forgotten with the Snowden and the NSA reporting back in 2013 that when we started doing the reporting, it was considered by a lot of people to be criminal or quasi-criminal, not just what Edward Snowden did, but what we were doing and reporting the information myself at The Guardian and my colleague, Laura Poitras. People forget that because the reporting went on to win the Pulitzer and the Polk and every major journalism award. The film about what we did won an Oscar. There was a feature film about it, in which we were all played by famous actors. So it's easy to forget in retrospect that when we started doing the reporting, there was a lot of talk about the U.S. government coming to arrest us or prosecute us for doing that reporting. And the argument that was used, it probably at this point isn't difficult to guess, was that we weren't really journalists. I'll never forget the day after we started doing the Snowden reporting. I was in Hong Kong and I published an article at The Guardian on June 6th, the first article from the Snowden archive that revealed that the NSA was engaged in mass indiscriminate, unconstitutional and illegal spying on millions of Americans by collecting our phone records without any individual search warrants. Obviously an act of journalism to report and disclose that the government was illegally spying on its own citizens. The very next day, the New York Times published a profile on me, basically asking, who is this person who's at the center of this reporting, who's causing so much tumult and disruption around the world through these leaks? And the headline of the article in the New York Times that was intended to introduce its readers to who I was, was the following. Anti-surveillance activist finds himself at the center of a surveillance debate. Not journalist, even though I was doing reporting for The Guardian, one of the world's oldest and most established newspapers, but anti-surveillance activist. And when there was a huge backlash on Twitter and other places, because the New York Times purposely called me an activist rather than a journalist, They then changed the headline to blogger finds himself at the in the middle of a surveillance controversy. It was clear they were doing anything they could to ensure that I was not considered a journalist, even though that article explicitly acknowledged the possibility that I could be prosecuted by the Justice Department. They were widely criticized for it. The public editor at the time, who was designed to critique the paper, they got rid of that, the public editor. So now nobody critiques them. But at the time they had a public editor, wrote an article lambasting the paper for calling me uh, anything but a journalist. Uh, a week later, after they did that, I went on Meet the Press and David Gregory notoriously asked me why I should not be in prison along with my source, Edward Snowden, as if the TV personality David Gregory was a real reporter or a real journalist, even though he's never done anything in his life, but obsequiously interview famous politicians. Whereas I, even though I was doing the crux of reporting, somehow wasn't a real journalist. Andrew Ross Sorkin, the New York Times columnist and CNBC host, went on TV and said I should be in prison. So this is very much in the air, the idea that we were something other than journalists. And whenever James Clapper, who was the person who caused Edward Snowden to come forward, by lying to the Senate 
when he was asked three months before we began our reporting, does the NSA collect data on millions of people? And he looked at the senator who asked him that in the, in the face and lied to him and said, no, sir, not wittingly, which is the final straw that convinced Edward Snowden he had to come forward. Whenever James Clapper, whose lies we exposed with our reporting, would talk about us, he would purposely call us not journalists, but aiders and abettors of the fugitive. And about three months ago, Yahoo News reported that in 2013, the CIA was plotting how to either kidnap or murder Julian Assange. And part of that article talked about how what they were also trying to do was create theories that would allow them during the Snowden reporting to spy on and even prosecute myself and Laura Poitras. And their tactic was to say that we weren't really journalists, but to reclassify us as what they called information brokers. So this tactic that now liberals are using against James O'Keefe, oh, he's not a real journalist. The same one that they're using against Julian Assange, he's not a journalist, was the one that they tried to use against myself and Laura Poitras before all the Pulitzers and Polks and Oscars and other awards to try and say that what we are really were, were criminals because we weren't real journalists, even though unlike them, we were doing the crux of journalism. When I was criminally indicted in Brazil for reporting I did in Brazil, that was also the theory of the Brazilian government, that I wasn't really doing reporting, even though it was revealing widespread corruption. I somehow had gone beyond what a journalist does and became a criminal. The Brazilian court, Supreme Court, ultimately held that what I was doing was pure journalism. So this tactic, I know firsthand, is extremely dangerous for press freedom. And yet it's the one that is now being aggressively endorsed by leading left liberal newspapers like the New York Times and others who seem completely unconcerned about the FBI's targeting of James O'Keefe. One last point about this tactic, this attempt to say this person's a journalist, this person's not a real journalist, and therefore they don't get the protection of the First Amendment. As I indicated earlier, it's not just dangerous, tyrannical, and authoritarian to anoint yourself as the arbiter of who is and isn't a journalist. It's also constitutionally ignorant. And the reason I say that is because the assumption embedded in that argument is a very dangerous one, but also very false. The assumption is that freedom of the press, as guaranteed by the First Amendment to the Constitution, is not a right that is available to all citizens. It's a right that's available only to a small, cloistered, privileged, credentialed priesthood, a small group of special citizens who bear the name journalists. And only if you're credentialed as a journalist do you actually have the right to, be, to, to claim the guarantee of a free press in the First Amendment. If you're just an ordinary citizen who's not a journalist, a real journalist like James O'Keefe or Julian Assange or myself back in 2013, that right isn't for you. How does anybody get themselves to believe that? There are no rights in the Constitution that are reserved only for a small, tiny, cloistered, privileged, licensed, credentialed group of people. They're universal rights available to every citizen of the United States by virtue of possessing citizenship. And indeed, if you look at the debate surrounding the Constitution and the First Amendment, one of the main grievances 
that the colonists had about the British crown was that they had created laws the king had, the British king, that forbade citizens to use the printing press unless and until they were licensed by the state as legitimate journalists. So the idea that they would try and replicate one of the primary abuses about which they were so angry, namely that only a certain class of people called journalists had the right of a free press, is preposterous, but it's even more so when you look at who the most celebrated journalists of that time were. When they talked about freedom of the press, they were not protecting a small group of people. They were protecting an activity. The activity being using the printing press. And one of the most famous cases of someone who had done that so effectively was Thomas Paine, who used the ability to have a freedom of the press to circulate his pamphlet, his pro-democracy, anti-monarchy pamphlet, Common Sense, even though Thomas Paine had never worked in his life as a journalist. He had never worked for an established newspaper. He had other jobs unrelated to journalism, but he was still somebody exercising the core freedom of the press. Obviously, the same was true of James Madison and other people who anonymously wrote the Federalist Papers when freedom of the press was enacted as part of the First Amendment, alongside all of the other rights to which every citizen can avail themselves, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom to peacefully assemble, to uh, have your grievances redressed to the government, the right of due process, every right in the Constitution available to all citizens, freedom of the press is right alongside it. It doesn't matter if you get to be called a journalist or not by the New York Times or the FBI or whomever. You have a right as a citizen to engage in that activity and this entire discourse about who is a real journalist and who isn't, and therefore who the FBI can target in as punishment for what they're reporting and who they can't, is completely misguided. Just as basic constitutional doctrine, and it doesn't take all that much time to spend thinking about the fact that that's the case. The corporate media wants you to believe that they are this special, elevated, privileged caste that has the right to do things that you don't have the right to do. They want you to believe, for example, that it's totally fine for them to go and destroy people's lives by publishing information about what they tweeted eight years ago or some stray comment that they made 12 years ago. And that's journalism to be celebrated. But if you go and do that to them, if you criticize them, it's bullying or abuse or harassment or an attack on freedom of the press. They want you to create in your mind this distinction between the privileged caste that they compose and everybody else. And that is what this discourse is intended to do. And it's tyrannical and and repressive and authoritarian in all cases. But when it's designed to determine who gets to avail themselves of the First Amendment, who does it, it becomes much, much more pernicious than that. But the problem is when people talk about Kyle Rittenhouse, when people talk about Julian Assange, when people talk about James O'Keefe, for so many people involved in the discourse, all their brains allow them to do is to ask whether or not they like those people or not. And if they like those people, they're against any actions against them. And if they don't like those people, they're in favor of any actions against them. And there's zero room within that tribal 
mindset of in-group behavior for universally applied principles that apply not just to the people we like and agree with, but to those we dislike and whom we most disagree. And that was what I was trying to isolate in the article I wrote today and why I wanted to focus not so much on these cases themselves, about which I've already written, but about the reaction to them. So with that, um, I will begin to take questions in the sequence. I see them in the queue. Um, The first person is Gregory. So I think if you just unmute yourself, you should be ready to go. Hey, Glenn, how are you? Doing great, thank you. uh, Real quick, just on the Snowden case, uh, you know, all the news outlets when it first came out, I mean, they were calling him a nobody and their sources were telling him he was just a nerd and he didn't really have access to anything. And why didn't any of those journalists burn all those sources? I mean, obviously it was CIA and NSA that were, you know, feeding that information to them, saying that Snowden wasn't anybody. Um, I'm still in shock that Clapper, well, I'm not in shock, but Clapper should definitely be in jail for lying to Congress when they're now trying to nail Bannon, which is kind of crazy. And, but, uh, to get to the Rittenhouse case, you know, I was just reading on Twitter. They're saying they, they have two jurors who are afraid of, you know, voting because of the outcome that could happen, that they're afraid, of course, there could be riots or anything. And I, I was curious on, you know, what you think about that. I, I was thinking about the Chauvin case. And I have to say, when I really think about it in my heart, I'm like, I would be scared if I was on that jury uh, that, yeah, if I did say he was not guilty and he came in not guilty, he, it could have created another, just burn the country down. And, and I don't know. I mean, that's just one of those things where w- what is the right thing and the wrong thing and where are we at on this? Cause can he get a fair trial because of that reason? Yeah, those are great questions. Um, I'll just address a couple of them. You know, there's a ethical role in journalism that you're taught in journalism school that every journalist, if you ask them directly, will affirm which says that, of course, if you agree that you will protect the identity of sources, that sources can be anonymous, then you're duty-bound to protect the anonymity of those sources. There is, however, an exception to that rule, which is if that source uses the anonymity you've agreed to give them to purposely feed you disinformation, not only do you no longer have the duty to shield their identity, You have now the converse duty to reveal who it is that fed you those lies. And yet so often we see these journalists being willingly used by their sources to disseminate what the sources at the time know are false. There's so many cases like that. And yet I can't think of a single time where a journalist has stepped forward and said, I'm retracting the story because it's false. And I'm now going to reveal to you who my source was because they fed me false information. These journalists would rather have sources that lie to them and let them make scoops, even if they're false, than burn the bridges and tell the public who it is that lied to them. About the Rittenhouse uh, deliberations. So I've seen some of the speculation on Twitter And I would caution everybody to be careful about those reports. It's almost impossible, especially after one day of deliberation, for anyone to have accurate and reliable information 
about what the jurors in this case are saying for a lot of reasons. It is also the case that for a trial this complex, and I don't necessarily mean it's a hard verdict. By complex, I mean there's a lot going on in this trial. There's two dead bodies, a third who's severely wounded. There's all kinds of competing claims. There's all kinds of snippets of video uh of, of, of video snippets that are that you have to put into context. There's two weeks virtually of testimony, very emotional and very uh, dense testimony. The fact that it took the jurors a full day to deliberate before they returned a, a verdict doesn't surprise me at all. And I don't think there's a lot to read into that. Remember, either to acquit or to convict, there has to be unanimity. So even if there's one or two holdouts and 10 people saying, I want to acquit, there's going to at least be a day or two that it's going to take to get everybody on the same page. Obviously, if the jury never does, there'll be a mistrial. As for the outside pressure, I think it's a serious problem, a serious problem. Obviously, we've seen in this country that when race is injected into trials and there's a verdict that people don't like, it leads to social unrest. You go all the way back to the Rodney King trial when the police officers were acquitted in Los Angeles and there were days and days of riots. President then Bush, uh, 41, had to actually order the National Guard and the military to quell those riots. We've seen, obviously, in Minneapolis had the police officers, Derek Chauvin, in the George Floyd case, been acquitted. Nobody doubts there would have been social unrest. So one of the things that has concerned me so much about media outlets injecting race into this Rittenhouse case, even though it's a case of a defendant who's white, according to some police records, Latino, but probably white, having shot and killed two white people and wounded a third white person to continuously inject this racial narrative into the narrative about the trial, to me is essentially calling for social unrest in the event that Rittenhouse is acquitted. I think it's been incredibly irresponsible. And of course, with a case that has this much publicity, you do as much as possible in jury selection to find people who don't have views formed about the case. But anyone who lives in the United States knows full well that in a case like this, if you're on the jury, you can cause a lot of social unrest if you render a verdict that makes people angry. And you could even yourself be jeopardized in this era where there's cell phones all around and tons of surveillance because it's hard to guarantee the anonymity of the jury. So I'd be very skeptical about claims about what's happening inside the jury room after one day that are floating around on social media. But I think the concern that this jury is very well aware of the pressures that are already existing outside that courtroom and that will yeah. probably follow them for the rest of their lives. Those concerns are um, definitely very real ones. So let me go ahead and take the next uh, question, which is from Nick. If you unmute, I can hear your question. Hey, Glenn. Uh, uh, hey, uh, first time, long time. I hope your family of humans and dogs are, are doing well. Uh, so thank you. They're making themselves heard in the background, I think, but uh, I, I, I figured. I, yeah. Um, so this question is kind of just about your uh, larger point about principles. And I'm so sorry if this seems like a meandering windup, but I swear I'm going some somewhere coherent with this. 
Um, a couple weeks ago, I was listening to a podcast that I like, which is called a Dog Zone 9000. It's kind of absurdist comedy, but it is still kind of weirdly insightful. Um, they had this episode called uh, The Man Versus Comedy. And what it was is that they were talking about basically the, uh, the turning point in kind of uh, independence. You could call it journalism or content creation, but basically how it took this massive turn as soon as the uh, case of Hulk Hogan versus Gawker came up. And it was this instance where Gawker was trying to fight defamation that they realized if it went high enough in the courts that ultimately it would redound to their benefit. But the problem was the longer that the legal battle went on, they didn't really have the financial resources to fight it. So that's what ultimately kind of did them in. And it was kind of a weird turning point because basically so many uh, comedy sites or content creations that are on like really slim margins, if they had any sort of kind of defamation case against them, they would just kind of default to removing the piece or redacting certain things. And uh, you could kind of even make a point that this may have been the whole shift in like completely kind of toothless or anodyne comedy on like big platforms like, you know, SNL or something like that. But um, so, and I'm sure this wasn't the intention, but the, but the vibe that I got from the end of it was just kind of reaffirming my idea that most cases of kind of pursuing defamation we're kind of cynical in a weird way. But then the weird thing that I've been thinking about today with the news of, uh, this, this is where this is going, um, Alex Jones, the fact that uh, the ruling with the uh, families of the uh, Sandy Hook massacre going after him for defamation and actually winning. And I thought that this was really interesting, if only because the trend for somebody like Alex Jones or even like Rachel Maddow, their defense is almost the opposite that like when, when they address like kind of misinforming their viewers, their defense kind of is, is almost like my audience is somebody that like realizes I'm an entertainer and they're in on the bit. But the thing is the family getting him for defamation, I don't really disagree with. And then I was really kind of thinking about, and this is my impression of it. I don't know if this is objectively true, but I feel like it's kind of rare that defamation happens in a way that's both justified and kind of successful. So I'm curious if you were following this and if you thought had any ideas of how this particular one got through. And then um, the other thing that I was thinking about was, does this create any sort of precedent that other kind of news outlets or personalities that do kind of deliberately lie about certain people can be brought or like reined in or actually face some consequences for deliberately misleading people. Because the thing that I'm struggling with is that I, I feel like it's probably a useful tool to create some actual consequences for journalists that do misinform people and do it deliberately. But at the same time, you know, in the case of like somebody like uh, Will Menneker, who was sued by Jason Miller for him calling him like a rat faced baby killer homunculus, I believe it was like, I still want to, you know, support. Uh, and of course he, he won, uh, it was against uh, him and his girlfriend, Catherine Kruger. But um, the, idea being, uh, I guess I'm asking, have you thought about this question as a lawyer and a journalist of kind of how to ride this line over what the principle in this case should be or how policy should be different? Or uh, it, hopefully that'll make sense. But basically, like, uh, oh, why is Glenn Greenwald to tell me how to feel about this? Yeah, you know, obviously, these uh, questions are ones that people have struggled with for a long time. Even people who believe in what are called absolutist defenses of free speech, like kind of the old ACLU lawyers who represented the rights of Nazis to march through 
a town filled with Holocaust survivors, something as, you know, provocative and emotionally harmful, deliberately so as it gets, but nonetheless taking the position that the First Amendment allows them to do that, even people who have kind of taken the most extreme views of the First Amendment believe that the protections ought to apply to political opinion, but not erroneous claims of fact about somebody else designed to destroy their reputation, which is another way of saying even First Amendment absolutists recognize that there is room for having liability for defamation. Now, the key division that has been created is one that I agree with completely, which is the difference between what happens when private citizens are defamed, which was the case with Alex, the Alex Jones suit. The people who were suing Alex Jones were not public figures. They were parents of kids killed in Sandy Hook. I don't know a ton about that case, so I don't want to say too much about it because I just didn't follow it that carefully. It wasn't that interesting as a legal matter, but I know enough to say that, that the people who were suing Alex Jones were not presidents or senators or famous political activists or journalists. They were parents whose only entry into the news cycle was because their elementary school children were killed by a mass shooter. So the protections that private citizens have against being defamed by journalists, about being lied about by journalists, are pretty robust. It's not that hard if you're a private citizen to sue journalists who have lied about you in a way that has harmed your reputation. And I don't think it should be hard. I think journalists who have a big platform who can ruin people's reputations and therefore their lives have a serious responsibility. That's an immense power And with that power comes the responsibility to use it in a careful and ethical way, especially when you're talking about people who never chose to enter public life. The distinction then becomes the private person, like those people, versus anybody who has deliberately sought out or who otherwise takes advantage of a public platform. Anyone who in the words of defamation law, is a public figure, which obviously means powerful people, CEOs of corporations, people who hold elective office, journalists who are prominent and well-known, activists who purposely seek out uh, a public forum to change how people think, celebrities and the like. And when it comes to what journalists can say about people who are public figures, it is extremely difficult for a public figure to sue journalists for having to fame them. You, it's, it's designed to be almost impossible. It's not enough to say the journalist published something about me that was false and that falsehood destroyed my reputation and destroyed my life. Even if that's true, that journalist lied about me what they published destroyed my reputation and destroyed my, my, my life. If I'm a public figure, I will lose the case if that's all I can prove. I have to go much further and be able to show that the journalist published this falsehood knowing that it was false with the intention to destroy my life with what's called actual malice. And well, um, and I guess the, uh, the, the, 
uh, asymmetry that I guess I was trying to point out to is that, yes, that's the way it's supposed to work in principle, but also these public figures can levy, like use all of their resources, financial or otherwise, to basically make it so that that, that point that gets to it, that does ultimately go in the journalist's favor, the journalist may not be as financially well off and kind of gives up along the way or is financially ruined on the way. That's that's kind of the big thing I was trying to uh, highlight with the lead up. Yeah, so so that's that's an important point. I'll I'll tell you uh, a little anecdote, which is um, in the United States, unlike a lot of countries, probably most, if you sue somebody and you lose, all you have lost are the attorney's fees that you paid for your lawyers to wage a losing lawsuit. You don't actually have to pay the legal fees of the person who ends up winning. So take the case that you cited, which was Peter Thiel, a billionaire with unlimited resources, wanted to bankrupt Gawker, and he paid for the legal fees of Hulk Hogan to sue Gawker and many other people to sue Gawker. Even if he had lost every one of those lawsuits, he still would have accomplished his objective of bankrupting Gawker because... Gawker would not have been able to force Peter Thiel to recover their 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 legal fees, even though he lost the case. So that gives people with a lot of resources a great amount of power. And I think the point you're getting at, which is that can be very dangerous, is a good one. And I'll just give you a quick anecdote. Here in Brazil, it is the case that if you sue somebody and you lose, you are required to pay their attorney's fees. So... It's a big deal to sue somebody because if you sue and lose, you're going to not only pay your own attorneys, but you're going to pay theirs too. Even still, there's a lot of very, very rich people here in Brazil who have made it known to media outlets that if you publish something negative about them, they will sue you until the end of time. They will use all of their resources to keep you tied up in court. And... With media outlets struggling, you know, 40, 50 years ago, if you were CBS or the New York Times, you didn't worry about that. You were making a ton of money. You're a huge corporation. Now these media outlets are very precarious with the exception of a few. So a friend of mine who's a journalist, a longtime journalist named Alex Quadras, he's an American journalist, has been based in Brazil for a long time, wrote a book about oligarchy in Brazil. And it was designed to look at the seven or eight most influential billionaires. The book was called Brazilianaires. And it kind of exposed the secrets of billionaires in Brazil. He could not get that book published in Brazil by any Brazilian publisher because they were so petrified that they would be sued into oblivion by these billionaires. And so he had to publish his book only in English. It got published in the United States. Obviously, no one bought it. There's not a lot of interest in the United States about reading about Brazilian billionaires. The book should have been published in Brazil and Portuguese, because that's where the interest was. That's who should have known about that book. But the book ended up not being published because of that imbalance. So I know that there are a lot of newsrooms when it comes time to report on rich people who get much more scared and even kind of unwilling to do reporting because they're afraid of um, of getting sued to the point where they can no longer afford the legal fee. So that's definitely a real concern. Um, and it's something that I think we need to figure out a way to deal with, especially as media outlets become more and more financially 
precarious. All right, let me take the next uh, question, which is from Art. So if you can unmute yourself, Art. Hi, is that working? Okay. Yep, I can hear you now. All right, great. Sorry about that. Um, if, if Back to the Veritas thing. If the FBI can seize privileged information from journalists and then somehow it magically winds up at the New York Times, what does that do to whistleblowing and the, the anonymity that they expect when they go to a journalist? Well, this was, I think, one of the most problematic parts of what the New York Times did. The New York Times got a hold of the secret communications between Project Veritas and their lawyers. And those communications between a lawyer and a client are privileged. They're secret. They're actually sacred. The government can't get a hold of those no matter what. That, they're, they're among the most sacred things. We want people to be able to communicate with their lawyers in confidence that no one's ever going to be able to find out what they've said because they need, you need to be honest with your lawyer and tell your lawyer what you've done. You need to tell your lawyer, I'm considering doing this. I'm considering doing that without anyone ever knowing about what it is that you're planning on doing. And the New York times somehow got a hold of the secret memos between project Veritas and their lawyers. Now it's easy to assume that the way the New York Times got that is because the FBI executed these search warrants, got these documents, and then leaked them to the New York Times. We don't know for sure that that's how the New York Times got them. They might have gotten them some other way. It would be a pretty big coincidence if the New York Times just happened to get the legal memoranda between the Project Veritas and their lawyers at exactly the time that the FBI was executing search warrants in all of their homes. But the New York Times hasn't said that's how they got it, so we can't assert for sure that they did, but I found it very ethically questionable that the New York Times chose to disclose the contents of the communications between Project Veritas and their lawyers. In fact, they didn't just summarize the parts they found to be in the public interest. They actually took the memos and put them up on their site. Yeah. I think they eventually took them down. So the first question is, you know, how is that in the public interest for people to be able to find out what Project Veritas and their lawyers are talking about, which is the only question that matters if you're a journalist. You don't publish information unless it's in the public interest. That's as foundational as it gets. But also, I really doubt, I can't say for sure in this counterfactual, but I have serious doubts that if the New York Times had gotten legal memoranda between, say, the Washington Post and its lawyers or MSNBC and its lawyers, that they would have published it. Why would they do that then for Project Veritas? Right. Again, it gets back to that same point. Project Veritas has an ideology the New York Times dislikes. They don't really regard them as real journalists for whatever reasons. And so the New York Times went and did it. And what was extra disturbing about it was that the New York Times was very deceitful about what they did. They kind of said the pro that Project Veritas kept asking their lawyers, this is something we would like to do, but we're worried that it might be illegal under the Espionage Act or other laws. Can you tell us whether or not this was something that we can do? As though asking your lawyers that is somehow suspicious. That's why you have <laughs> right. lawyers. I can guarantee you every week in the New York Times, a reporter goes to the New York Times lawyers and says, this is something I would like to do. Is, am I able to do this under the law? What, what are the outer limits of what the law permits? 
I've done that a million times. Obviously, I did that in the Snowden case, every story I ever published, and in the Brazil case. So it was a very kind of deceitful way that the New York Times framed this as being somehow suspicious, and I thought it was highly ethically questionable for the New York Times to publish legal, privileged legal communication between Project Veritas and their lawyers, but they did it because they know most of the readers, 95% are liberals and Democrats and hate Project Veritas and therefore don't care. And that's not a very ethical way to make decisions about how to do journalism. <laughs> All right, good talking to you. Thank Thanks. You. Let me take the next uh, call, which is, um, I believe it's Lacey. Let me see. Lacey, if you can unmute yourself, I should be able to hear you. Hi, can you hear me? I can hear you. Awesome. Just wanted to say thanks for everything you do. Um, it's really appreciated. I know from like, as, I don't know, just as you watch like the ACLU kind of like take a nose dive, it's nice to know that like, people still stick up for like some basic civil liberties. Um, Thank you. I just, so I just have a couple of comments. Um, and then I guess also kind of just a question. Um, the first one, I guess, is just in response to, I think, the caller from two um, two people before me about the, um, about uh, uh, kind of like disparities, like people not being able to pay legal fees to defend themselves in court. And that's like a pretty big thing, just also in the criminal justice system, how like the state has basically unlimited resources to go after people. Um, you know, I mean, Kyle Rittenhouse is really lucky, um, but that's not the experience of like many Americans and how like the state doesn't have to pay. Like, I don't know. I think that having the state have to pay like legal fees if you are found like innocent or sorry, not guilty is would also be like something to explore. Um, and I guess um, also in terms of the. Um, what we were talking about with the Project Veritas, um, obviously the attack on like the press is really frustrating, but also just it seems like kind of like government overreach, like from the FBI. Um, how I'm not exactly sure like why they're getting involved in a stolen diary. Um, because I mean, it just feels like, like this is not something like if. Like, for example, the FBI would not be in, um, investigating a crime like if my diary was stolen or if like pretty much anyone else's, even if it crossed state lines, like you would call the like the local police and they would basically say you could pay a fine to like file in court. I don't know. Um, and that was just I just wanted to like make some comments. So. Yeah, no, those are two really important points. Um, so. One of the things that I found so that I found so disturbing, I've been somebody who has been a criminal justice reform advocate for a long time. I wrote a book in 2011 arguing that the criminal justice system is basically a two tier justice system that if you're wealthy and powerful. You are almost certain to, to get acquitted or to get a light punishment. And obviously, if you're financially um, deprived or in other ways disadvantaged, then the criminal justice system is against you. Not a very original thought at this point. Ten years later, I think people are well aware of that. But it's been an issue of fine for a long time. I think yeah, that I that the idea that, you know, we're a country that has 5% of the world's population and in prison, 25% of our citizens is a really um, poor reflection on our society. Something is broken 
in our country that we imprison more of our citizens than any other in the world. And there's a lot of reasons for that, including the fact that we're just overly criminalized. But the point that you made is one of the biggest, which is if you are charged by the government, especially the federal government, that has unlimited resources, this entire system is structured to all but force you to plead guilty to crimes, even if you're not actually guilty, in part because oftentimes they'll just bankrupt you. Even if you can't afford your lawyers, it's true you get a a public defender. They're better in the federal system, but still not as good as a private lawyer. So that puts you at a huge disadvantage. They threaten to go after your family. If you don't plead guilty and go to trial and get convicted, they purposely penalize you with much greater time in prison than if you had just pled guilty. And so this has been a standard concern on the left, among even a lot of liberals, among a lot of libertarians, whereas conservative politics tend to be have been more law and order and pro-prosecutor. That has really changed because of Russiagate, because of the prosecutorial abuses that we saw as part of the effort to prosecute people like Michael Flynn and others. But with the January 6th defendants, what we're seeing is exactly the dynamic that you described, which is 600 or more people are charged with crimes, the majority of whom never engaged in any violence of any kind, as the government admits. And yet a lot of them are being charged with felonies, even though they didn't engage in violence under a very distorted theory about a 2002 Wall Street regulation law that a lot of them can't contest because they can't afford lawyers and their public defenders aren't equipped in terms of time and budget in order to defend it. So I think there should be a lot more concern about the January 6th defendants and how so many of them are impoverished and not getting the kind of defense that they need. Um, And, you know, I think that it goes back to what we were discussing earlier, which is the politicization of everything. And you're absolutely right. Why is the Justice Department investigating the theft of Ashley Biden's diary as though that's a federal crime? As you said, even if it's brought against state lines, clearly they're looking at who the person is whose diary was stolen and not the crime itself and caring only about that. And whenever you start to see the justice system being driven by who is involved as opposed to what crimes are involved, that's when I think we really ought to start worrying. All right. Um, let me take one last call. Um, we've just gone about an hour. So who's ever in the queue, uh, we will be doing this show regularly at least once or twice a week. So you will definitely have an opportunity um, to get in the queue and ask questions. I apologize uh, if you've been in the queue and, and don't get a chance. But I'm going to take one last call given the, the time. And that is Elias. Um, so if you unmute yourself, I should be able to hear you shortly. Hi, Glenn. Yes. Uh, Thanks for your time today and for your unwavering commitment to investigative journalism. Both are greatly appreciated. Uh, Could you please explain? Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Could you kindly explain FISA courts, sneak and peek warrants, and national security letters, um, and how they result in the violation of the Fourth and Fifth Amendment rights of subjects, as well as the First Amendment rights of recipients? Do you also think we've reached a turning point in our reclaiming of civil liberties that we ceded with the passing of the Patriot Act? Finally, as an American intelligence veteran who lost three grandparents in the Syrian civil war, I'm uh, terrified of our homegrown sectarianism. 
could you share with us your take on the uniquely American obsession with race? Thank you. Yeah, um, those are great questions. Very complex ones. So I'm going to try and have to just for the sake of time, um, simplify them a little bit and try and kind of zone in on a couple of the key points that I think you raised. Those are things I'd love to talk about at length um, at another time. So let me just kind of um, go through them. So as far as the FISA court is concerned and the powers that it vests in the NSA and the FBI to spy on us and the abuses of it and the kind of political tide that has been that, that was turning, it's really interesting because when we did the Snowden reporting, obviously the FISA court was a major focal point of the reporting that we were doing because the government's claim in response to our reporting, the Obama administration's claim is, oh, you don't need to worry if we're going to spy on you because we have this great court called the FISA court that's there to protect you. And it makes sure that we can only spy on you and only gives us a warrant if we really prove that one is needed. And I think we were able to show people the longtime truth that the FISA court by design is actually a joke. It's a court that meets in secret. There's only one side present, which is the government. And as a lawyer, I can tell you that if there's only one side present, you can pretty much convince a judge or a jury of anything that you want without someone there to show the other side of the story. And they're judges who are national security judges whose interest is to approve every warrant. And just think about that. The FBI goes to the FISA court and they say, we need to spy on this person because we believe that they're plotting a terrorist attack. Even if the FBI has no good cause that they can show to this judge to justify that argument, why would a FISA court judge ever say no and risk having, in this one instance, this person goes and blows up something or kills a bunch of people, and then forever the FBI says, oh, the reason we didn't stop that person is because we went to this FISA court judge and asked them for a warrant, and they said no. So in every instance, virtually, over the past 30 years, the FISA court has said yes every time the FBI asks for a warrant. It's virtually a rubber stamp. It's not a real protection. And I think that the Snowden reporting started to convince people that we didn't have any real safeguards. And unfortunately, one of the things that Russiagate did is it put a lot of faith, it restored a lot of faith in these security services like the CIA, like the FBI, like the NSA, because they became the tools and instruments that liberals used in order to undermine Donald Trump. And even when it was revealed that the FBI, in order to spy on Carter Page, lied to the FISA court, submitted false evidence to the FISA court, a, fi a FBI lawyer pled guilty to lying to the FISA court. Now, imagine how easy it is to get a warrant, but it was so unjustified. They still had to lie to the FISA court to get it. There still isn't enough suspicion or skepticism or concern about how easy it is for our government to spy on us. And I think there's now at least some further momentum in the right direction as a result of some of these most recent revelations about how much these powers were abused over the last five years for political reasons. Let me just, as the last point, uh, address the issue about the injection of race into everything. Obviously, we talked about that a little bit 
with the attempt by the media to inject race as the predominant factor into the Rittenhouse trial, even though there's no obvious reason why that trial should predominantly or even at all be about race. You know, I think that obviously a lot of us have begun thinking more about how we talk about race, because over the last year and a half, there has been a concerted effort after the George Floyd uh, trial to change the way we talk about race. And politics are starting to become centered on a lot of these radical changes, this effort to convince us that we should treat people differently, not the same, based on their racial categories, that we should talk about race in a way that ascribes certain attributes to one race and certain attributes to another, certain negative attributes for one race, certain positive attributes for another. This constant attempt to force people to judge everything, not just some things, but everything through the prism of race. And I don't think any decent person can deny that racism has been an important part of American history and continues to be a problem that we ought to work on, like a lot of other problems. I think the concern that a lot of people are starting to have, and I know I'm certainly starting to share this, is that by making race the number one factor and metric that we use to judge everything, what we're essentially doing is tearing everybody apart, tearing society apart, balkanizing people by race, encouraging them to view everything even things that don't have an obvious racial component like the Rittenhouse case through the prism of race. And maybe it's the fact that I have a multiracial family and have two kids who are not white, that I am particularly alarmed by anything that tries to tear people apart by race. I think about the world I want my kids to grow up in and I don't want them growing up in a world where the primary way that they're judged in the first instant, even if it's positive or condescendingly beneficial is through their race or they're told that they have to certain think certain things or belong to a certain party or pledge their loyalty to a certain ideology because of their race. I don't want a world even for them or for myself in which race becomes the predominant factor. And I think what we're seeing, and you can look at it in all of the examples we talked about tonight, that there is a concerted effort. And usually it comes from not ordinary people who are trying kind of to just get through their lives, but through an elite discourse, there's an attempt to make race predominant again and to divide us all based on race. It benefits a small group of people at the expense of, I think, the vast majority of people of all races and society itself. And I think the people who are starting to really worry about that have a very valid concern. And it's definitely one that I share. So um, with that, I want to Thank everybody who came tonight, who listened. I think um, this is a great platform. I'm becoming increasingly excited every time that I use it. We'll get more into the swing of how it works and what we can use it for. Um, and I think it's going to continue to get smoother and smoother still. So thank you, everybody, to listen who listened. I hope you'll keep coming back. And I hope everybody has a great night.